0: All right, so let's pray. Father, we praise you because um, you have blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Uh, For you chose us in him before the creation of the world, which is just amazing, to be holy and blameless in his sight. So for you to choose us before this world was created means that we've been on your mind for an awful long time. And we know that we are far from blameless, but in Christ, standing close to him, we are blameless because of his mercy and forgiveness. And so while in this earth, the amount of blessing we're going to receive is, is going to be different. Some of us may receive a lot of blessings, some of us may end this life with very little worldly blessings. But all of us have been blessed in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing. And that affects now and it goes on forever. So we we praise you, Father. We gather tonight in gratitude. And amazement for your kindness to us. And we ask that you would show us individually how it is we can make the most of the time that you intend for us to to be in this world. Speak to us, we ask now in the name of Jesus Christ. We ask this. Amen. Amen. All right, <clears throat> Salt and light. You've heard of it, right? Yeah. so let's uh, let's let me read the passage of what Jesus said about salt and light. Then after I read it, just so you can get ready for this, uh, I want you to say this, us to say this together. Um, What we're going to say together, and I'll I'll lead you, so don't just say it. Um, We're going to say together, we are the salt of the earth. And then we're going to say, we are the light of the world. So let me read this, and then we're going to say this. Matthew 5, 13 through 16, Jesus' words, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Okay, so you ready? First, we are the salt of the earth. Let's say it together. We are the salt of the earth. Next one, we're the salt, we're the light of the world. So let's say this together. We are the light of the world. So we've been looking through the book of First Peter, which is written to Christians who are struggling to continue to grow and become different, and they're struggling with the price that it costs to be different in this world, both then and now. So, so far, I would say the first two parts of chapter one of 1 Peter have really been more along the lines of the, the salt part of what Jesus is saying. In other words, how it is that we become different. The new life that Jesus gives us and how he grows our faith. That was the first session in 1 Peter. And then today we talked about pretty much the world that we find ourselves in. So if we're salt, what is it that's wrong with this world? Why is this world empty, or to use the salt analogy, in need of flavoring? Now, tonight I want to shift... And we're going to turn to chapter 2 of 1 Peter, and I think it, it really addresses more of the light image that Jesus presents. Now, when it comes to the salt, the primary concern Jesus has is that the salt would lose its saltiness, is that we would cease to be different, and we would become to be flavored like the world around us. And the concern with the light is that the light would be hidden. The, the idea is that a bowl would be placed over it. He's saying you don't have a light and place a bowl over it. The light is there to shine in the darkness. And in chapter 2, I think Peter addresses three bowls, let's say, that tend to cover up the light. He doesn't use these words, but to follow on the teaching of Jesus, I think this is part of what he's talking about. And there are three ways that we tend to hide the light of Jesus, and diminish the assignment that Jesus has given us to make a difference in this world for him. Now, if you consider the people in history who really have made a difference for good, you'll notice two common themes. Number one, they were, they were different than the people around them. And number two, they paid a price to be different. It cost them. You know, people like Martin Luther even Galileo, or Martin Luther King Jr., or Mother Teresa. They made a difference in this world, and they paid a real big price to be different and to make a difference. Now, we may never impact history to the degree that they have, but we can make a significant difference in the part of the world that God has placed us. But if we choose to make a difference, do not be under any illusion that you will not pay a price to be different we have to be ready to pay that price if you follow jesus christ you are following the biggest change agent the biggest difference maker ever to walk this earth and like every difference maker he was different and he paid the price for us now as his followers we're called to follow him in the kind of change he wants to bring to this world So we're using the New Testament book of 1 Peter, again, to guide our understanding of how to be different in the right kind of way. We're not just talking about odd different. We're talking about the kind of different that God wants us to be. So tonight we come to the set of verses that outline, I think, the price of being different. And if we're not willing to pay this price, then the light of the gospel of Jesus is hidden. It's covered in a bowl. So three bowls, three ways that we don't pay the price. The first way is isolation. This, I'll just call this the isolated Christian. Um, this individual decides to go it alone for the most part, and therefore they, they rarely sacrifice for anything bigger than themselves. And the truth is, you can't make an impact in this world for Jesus by yourself. Even beyond the gospel, you pick anyone that's made an impact on this world and you'll find that there's a bunch of names behind that one name you know. Names that you'd almost have to do research for to find out and maybe some of the names you'd never ever know. There are a lot of people who would like to change this world, but there are not as many people who would want to join a world-changing team because to do that, you have to follow And there's no glory in that. Now, as we've been talking about, the the, the greatest world-changing team in history was started by Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago. And so Peter describes this team this way, 1 Peter 2, 4 through 5. So we're now in chapter 2. We're going to work through several verses in a row of 1 Peter 2. Verse 5 says, as you come to him, speaking of Jesus Christ, the living stone, Rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to Him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. You're not doing this by yourself. To be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So let's think through this. As we come to Jesus, we discover that He is a stone. He's a rock on which we can build our lives. Now, he's not a solitary boulder kind of stone just sitting there for us to look at in amazement. He's actually the foundation of a structure. Peter says a spiritual house. He's the one on whom we can build our lives and link together with others in the same cause, and that stone will stand the test of time. It will not shift. It will not crack. So Jesus is not just a good man with some great ideas. He is a living stone. That's an interesting combination of words, living stone. Stone refers to the the stability of the material. Jesus is a timeless foundation. We build on him will never be put to shame. But he's a living stone, which means he's, he's alive and therefore able to interact with us and we can relate to him. And so it's kind of like he's the foundation and he's the contractor. He's the, he's the one on whom we build our lives and he's the one that we regularly consult with and who we follow in this life. He's alive, and he can help us build. Now, it references the fact here that a lot of people reject Jesus as the foundation for their lives. But that doesn't change the fact that he is God's chosen foundation. And that makes him a precious gift to us. Now, you don't lay a foundation unless you intend to build something on it. So what exactly is being built on the foundation of Jesus Christ. Well, as you read through the rest of the New Testament, you discover that it's it's the church. This is the spiritual house. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. So Jesus is not just the foundation of a bunch of individual lives. He is the foundation of a lot of individual lives that are being built together, linked together into a spiritual house. Now, the Greek word in the New Testament that's used here for stone was a particular kind of stone. It was the word that was used for a building stone. And that's very significant to understand because this was not just a rock laying around on the side of the road. This was a stone that had been shaped and chiseled and cut into a particular shape for a specific purpose and placement in a construction project. That's this kind of stone. It's a building stone, not just a laying there kind of stone. And this is why when a follower of Jesus Christ decides to go it alone or to isolate themselves, all of the great potential that God has crafted in them, all of the gifts, the spiritual gifts, the abilities, the history, all of those moves and even a continuing effort to chisel and shape them, all of that great potential is reduced because they were created and crafted by God and chosen by him to fit together with other people. And if they don't join in and link together with other people, then they're a building stone that's now a laying there by itself kind of stone and all the potential of what it could be a part of is diminished. So the idea is we're not like an individual sculpture to be put on display. That's not who we are. We are a single stone that was created and is being formed and chiseled to be a part of a much larger project that we've been talking about this week. So what that means is by ourselves, we are not able to reach the potential of what God has called us to be a part of. So really, as you look out on this world, it's kind of like you're looking out on a a construction yard. So here's a picture of a construction yard with a bunch of stones that have been set aside for different building projects. So there's stacks of stones, there's building materials waiting to be built together. And this is what the spiritual house is. It's a bunch of individual lives that have left the yard and are now being built together. So, for example, this church that I lead here in Huntington Beach, it is not this structure. It is a spiritual house made up of followers of Christ who have decided to work together in this place and in this time to change the world. The idea of an individual Christian is not present in the New Testament You don't find individual Christians. You find Christians who are part of churches meeting in locations in different cities. Many of the letters in the New Testament were written to a particular church in a particular place. We are a spiritual house. So challenge and connection. You guys are not a club on campus. You are a spiritual house. Working together, fitting together to bring the life-changing power of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, to your campuses. And when you leave those campuses, the most important decision you will make is where am I going to fit in with the great change project of God? What spiritual house am I going to be a part of? Where will that be? Now, the church, this spiritual house, is a semi-stable spiritual house. Let me explain what I mean by that. It's stable because of the cornerstone, the foundation stone that it's built on, which is Jesus Christ. And as such, this church thing, this spiritual house, can't be destroyed. Now, that's a, that's amazing. This looks very fragile, but it's built on a foundation that is not fragile. But I I say it's semi-stable because the material that rests on the cornerstone is us. We are the semi part of the stable. It turns out we are also living stones. Now stones are a common building material because they don't change. You don't buy a stone, and the next day, it's morphed into something different. That's not helpful in building. But we change. We are living stones. So we're constantly changing. We're growing. We're failing. We're recovering. We're getting back on track. So the church is rarely impressive. If you really get to be a part of every spiritual house that you join, is going to be less impressive than you think it should be because we're a part of it and we are living stones. Our lives are anchored in something solid, but we are changing. We're fluid. I often, when I first um, started pastoring here at Seabreeze, because I came out of a business background and what I did in part for um the company that I worked for, the marketing agency, was the owner was an entrepreneur and he just loved starting things. And so he tasked, he would come up with an idea and he would task me with a business plan. I I would have to write a business plan. So I learned how to write business plans. I learned how to write plans that banks might finance. And I know the elements of a business plan. And so a few years after I was here, I, I got to thinking, I wonder what a business plan would look like for a church and so I put it together in my mind and I thought well so we'd I can imagine myself sitting down with a loan officer you know uh, and explaining the business plan and he would say so <clears throat> what's um what's your market and I'd say well it's pretty much everybody because the market is sinners and we're all sinners so <laughs> if it's a person and they're alive that's our market okay so what um what are you selling What's the product? Well, it's, it's the gospel, the, the forgiveness that Jesus Christ offers. Oh, okay. So how, how do people buy that? Well, they don't actually buy it. They have to humble themselves and get to the point where they admit that they're sinners without hope of salvation, and they decide to ask Jesus for this gift. Okay, so sinners are your market. In order for them to buy what you're selling, you got to convince them that they're sinners. Yeah. Okay, that, I don't know how that it sounds like that's going to be. That doesn't sound like a, you know an exciting thing to me. So, but let's just set that aside. That's what you're doing. So how are you going to fund this thing? Oh, the people that decide to follow Jesus, they're just going to give money. Why would they do that? Well, because they're grateful and because Jesus said that as a part of our hearts changing, our money has to get involved, and so they're going to give money. So, so wait, so you're going to tell people they're sinners and that they need to give money. That's your business plan? Well, when you say it like that, it doesn't sound very good, but yeah, that's our business plan. And so when I thought of that, I I began every Sunday that we would show up, I began to walk in to what, and we weren't in this place. We were just meeting and rented facilities. I'd walk in and I would just be amazed. So the miracle happened again. People showed up and they gave money. People don't do things like this. So the church is the miracle of God. This spiritual house is a spiritual house. Without the power of the Holy Spirit, there is no house. But the first reason why people don't really become a part of God's plan for change is they don't value the spiritual house. They isolate themselves. Or they just kind of skirt on the edges of the spiritual house. They go it alone. The second bowl that hides the light is what I refer to as the irritated Christian. So the first is the isolated Christian. It's them and Jesus, and really nobody else. Second bowl is the irritated Christian. This person, over time, develops an arrogant attitude towards people who are not followers of Jesus. Now, how does that happen? It takes time. In my experience, This is never true of someone once they first become a Christian. When someone decides to follow Jesus Christ, they are so grateful and amazed at the mercy of God in their life. And all they want to do with people they know is tell them what's happened to them. But as time goes on, and as they begin to change, one of the tendencies I've noticed is they begin to treat people who have not made the same decisions they've made with increasing irritation and they begin to shake their heads at people who aren't Christians and they become irritated. And it's just as if they take a bowl and they just stuck it over the light. I mean, how drawn are you to irritated people? I'm, I'm not. And I'll say in my observation is in these past three years, People are just getting more and more irritated, just getting amped up, and I've noticed that among Christians. For us as a church, I've mentioned this to a few of you, we have a a simple statement that describes one of our core values, and it's just us for them. And us is a pronoun that identifies people who are part of a group. Them is a pronoun that describes people who are not in that group. So when you decide to follow Jesus Christ, you become an us as far as the faith, the Christian faith is. You're one of us. And what that automatically means is people who have decided not to follow Jesus, they automatically become of them. And what tends to happen over time is is you begin to get a little more irritated with them and the natural human flow of any group is any group reinforces its belongingness by creating opposition to those who are not them. And so they become an us versus them. This is what was true of the world that Jesus walked. All of the religious leaders of the day were opposed to everyone who wasn't a Jew. And one of the things they they just couldn't get their minds around is why did Jesus hang out with sinners? and Jesus told him it's because I'm a doctor and I've come to treat the sick. Jesus described us for them. And so that's one of our values as a church is we exist for people who aren't here yet. We don't exist for us. We sacrifice for people who aren't here yet. We inconvenience ourselves for people who aren't here yet. But the irritated Christian Slides into this us versus them. And they begin to think they're better. Now, how does that happen? Well, first, Peter describes the decisions people make about Jesus. And he continues on with the stone analogy. Verses 6 through 8, this is what we read. It says, for in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone. This is speaking of Jesus. And the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now, you who believe... Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone and a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. Do you notice the quotations? There are three quotations. And that's because Peter is making three quotes from three prophecies in the Old Testament about Jesus. And in each one of these prophecies, the Messiah, Jesus is referred to as a different kind of stone. He's referred to as a cornerstone, he's referred to as a capstone, and he's referred to as a tripping stone, the kind of stone you don't see and fall over. And these three kinds of stones from these three prophecies describe the different decisions that people make about Jesus. So first, the first Quote is from Isaiah 28.6, where it says, See, I lay in Zion a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. In ancient times, a cornerstone was the first stone laid for a structure. All other stones were placed in reference to that stone. So Jesus is the primary reference point for building our lives, if we decide to follow him. This is again this is not an intellectual decision. It is partly that, but it is mostly a building decision. When you decide to follow Jesus Christ, you have just decided that you're going to build your life referring to him. As you make your decisions, you reference Jesus Christ as the cornerstone. Everything comes off that. And so like a wall, you know, just think of a brick wall that's built layer by layer, We build our lives decision by decision and year by year, and we keep checking back with Jesus. And when we make bad decisions, we break some things down and we redo things and we ask for forgiveness and we keep realigning our lives. And over time, the weight of our life gets heavier and heavier on the cornerstone. In other words, we have more invested in this because time has gone on and we've made decisions and we've sacrificed some things to build a Jesus-referenced life. And that's why it says, those who decide to trust in this cornerstone Jesus and they build their lives on him, they'll never be put to shame. In other words, what they build over the years will never fail, because the cornerstone is stable. I have spent the better part of six decades Building my life on this cornerstone. And I have not done it perfectly. Sometimes it feels like I've done more rebuilding than building. I've often had to go back and clean up my messes. But I've spent a lot of time making Jesus reference decisions. And it would be a huge waste of a life for me to come to discover that Jesus wasn't the one true cornerstone. That'd be devastating. That all that I have built on him didn't really matter and is going to crumble? That'd be devastating. But what Peter says is that's never going to happen. You're never going to be embarrassed about any decision you've made that was referenced to Jesus. You're going to be glad. So that's the cornerstone. The next kind of stone is the capstone. But this is the next prophecy about the Messiah. But to those who do not believe, this is the other decision. The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. This comes out of Psalm 118:22. So a cornerstone is the first stone in a building project. A capstone, here's what it looks like, is the last stone in a building project. So if you reject Jesus as cornerstone, you will come to discover him at some point, but it will be at the capstone point. That's what it's saying. Jesus will become the capstone. What does that mean? The point is, those who reject Jesus now and don't build their lives based on him, they don't believe in him now. They will believe in him when he shows up at the end of the project. But by then they will recognize who he is as the capstone of history is being lowered and they will see that Jesus is the capstone. But by then, it's gonna be too late to build. That's the final stone on the project. The project is now over. It's too late. Now this isn't a, oops, I got a wrong answer on a test kind of mistake. This is, I tripped and I fell off a cliff, life-ending kind of mistake. And that's why the third prophecy says, a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. That's out of Isaiah 8:14. For many, Jesus will be that stone on the path that they didn't see, and they trip over. They ignored him, and they trip over him. So what this means for you and for me If you've decided that Jesus is your cornerstone, it means that you have spent time building your life based on what heaven says is important, what Jesus says is important. So over time, you are becoming more and more different than people who have made the other decision about Jesus. And you will become, as 1 Peter often says, aliens and strangers in this world. So we are all strangers in this world. But if people aren't following Jesus Christ, they are trying best they can to make a home here. But if we decide that our final home isn't here and we're going to live for the home that is to come, then we look stranger and stranger to people who are trying to make a home here. And that creates tension. Because the same exact stone that you're building on is the same stone that people have rejected. And that, that means you're an alien and a stranger to them. And it's not like you're a tourist stranger traveling in a foreign country. It's not that kind of stranger. It's more like you're an American waving a, an American flag in Iran kind of stranger. And so one of the ways Christians defend and respond to the increasing tension of being different from people who have made a decision against Jesus is they become arrogant about their decision. Why? Time has gone on. They have forgotten how it is that they became followers of Christ. See, the longer time goes on, the further you are from the moment where you decide to follow Jesus. And if you've been following Jesus, the more different you are than you were back then. And it's not just different, difference, you you are becoming a better person. So let's say you became a Christian 10 years ago. That's a 10-year-old memory. It's a great memory, but it's a 10-year-old memory. And now you've put 10 years in, and you are hopefully 10 years worth of a better person than you were when you made a Christian. So there's two things happening. It's harder for you to remember how it is you became a Christian, and it's easier for you To be grateful for and to think better about yourself for how much you've changed. And that can produce arrogance. So Peter goes on in verses 9 through 10 to say, But here's the contrast you are a chosen people. Now you've been building and you've been doing all this, but let's not forget how this got started. Let's not forget how the building project that you got to be a part of got underway. You were chosen. How arrogant can you be about that? Can't. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Now, I'll add these words as mine. Now, don't forget this. Once, you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. This is amazing. Arrogance flows out of a heart that has forgotten how it's gotten to where it is. And I have seen this happen, and I know it in my own heart. It's As time goes on, we forget of that moment when we were brought out of darkness into light. We we forget that we were chosen and we were recipients of mercy. As it says, once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You're part of God's royal court. Those who represent him in this world as ambassadors, as Paul says. Why? Why do you and I get to be this? God's mercy. One day, you and I were stumbling around in the dark Now we've stepped into the light. Actually, we didn't step into it. We were brought into it. We didn't even walk into it. We were carried into it. And now we're learning how to live in in light. Why is that true of us? Because of our brilliance? No. God just personally turned the light on for us. So why are you different? Why am I different than the people who have decided not to follow Jesus? It was all God's doing. It was a gift. Why did God do this? So that you would eventually get irritated to look down on everyone else? No, please no, that's not why. It's so that as you talk about him to others, it would have this flavor of you declaring the praises of him who did all this for you. And people would walk away not thinking, wow, look at you. But, wow, look at what God's done in that person's life. Arrogance calls attentions to itself. Humility declares the praises of God. It says, all I know is that if God hadn't helped me with this or forgiven me for that, my life would be a much bigger mess than it is even now. So how can you tell if you're arrogant? <laughs> I wish there was, you know, like on the dash of a car, I wish there was just like a red light that would, you know, show up. I could just look here and it's like, oh, ouch. Apparently I'm getting arrogant. I need to dial it back. That would be so helpful. Because arrogance and pride is just one of those things that just kind of rises in our hearts. And before long, we don't realize it. So God, I think, has installed a warning light of arrogance. And I, I think it's irritation. It's when you're irritated with someone, it's because you think you're the boss of them. <laughs> it's because you think more of yourself than you should. So when irritation rises in your heart, go back, maybe read through those verses, and thank God for choosing you and calling you out of the kingdom of darkness and bringing you into the kingdom of light. And then pray for the person you're irritated with. God might. Turn the light on in their hearts. That brings us to the the third bowl that hides the light. That is the immature Christian. The immature Christian is unwilling to pay the price, the ongoing price to grow and become the kind of person that God uses to change this world. You you can't post for change. You can't tweet for change. (laughs) Because statements don't impact history, no matter how good and true they are. It's people of character that carry the Holy Spirit. They change history. We think that you need to be famous to change history. But you really need the power of Jesus Christ to be a part of changing history. So in the next two verses of 1 Peter, we are given the top three reasons why maturity is stunted, why personal growth stops. So let's read these and then I'll just quickly identify the three. 1 Peter 2, 11 through 12. So we're just going through these one by, verse by, at a time. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in this world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. These are the three reasons why people don't mature. They stop growing in Christ. One, and I think there's more reasons, but these are the three he talks about. One is the desire to be popular. This is the aliens and strangers things. We don't want to be aliens and strangers in this world. I think one of the top reasons people stop growing is they start following what everyone else is doing. And therefore, all the effort that it takes to grow is diverted into the continual and exhausting effort to be liked. And it's just exhausting. But that's what a lot of time, a lot of, you know, we're drawn to. They follow the herd wherever it's rumbling now. So Peter urges us to own the aliens and strangers thing, to be that in this world. And the reason is that we are living among the pagans. Now, we hear the word pagan and we think, ouch, that's a negative word. But the word simply means without God. The only difference between me and this person who doesn't follow Jesus Christ is they are their own reference point. They make decisions without God. I understand that because I sometimes make some decisions without God. But my goal is to leave a God-referenced life. They're without God. And that has always been the dominant culture of the world. So what has always been popular is to live a life that is not referencing the true one and true God. So you just have to own this. If you are going to follow Jesus Christ, you are going to be unpopular. Now, for an American, that's almost like death. (laughs) So you're just going to have to die on that one. I'm just going to be unpopular. Many people have decided they want both. They want Jesus and just a little bit of fame, or at least to be liked. They want to grow, they want to mature as a Christian, and they want to be liked by the culture and the people they work with. And that works fine until they come across a moment where there's a dilemma, a moral dilemma. When Jesus says, this is the way to go, this is good and right, and the culture and the friends that we're hanging out and the people we're working with, they say, no, this is the way you gotta go. And in those moments, the desire to become popular and light sometimes kicks in, and these Christians go quiet. They take out the bowl, because they don't wanna pay the price of the looks and the stares and the thoughts. They're embarrassed. And their growth is stunted, and with it their impact. The second reason, I think, for an immature Christian is just the desire to sin. This is always the battle. Our hearts are just drawn to sin. So this maturity stopper is obvious. In his first first of his, or one of his parables rather, uh, Dan was referring to this where Jesus talks about the different Soils and the seed of God's word that lands on it. One of those is the uh, the field of thorns, basically weeds. And they just, they take all the nutrients of the life in the seed of God's word, doesn't get the nutrients that really allows a person to grow. And this is the way life is, is we just have to keep weeding sin out of our life. I mean, Nobody buys a bag of weed seed. They're just there. And that's the way our hearts are. You don't have to decide, you know, I'm going to really work on sin. I'm going to try to crank it up. It's, it's just always sprouting and popping. So you just got to keep mowing the weeds, pulling out the weeds, getting at the roots. And that's why Peter says we need to abstain from the sinful desires which war against our soul. So make no mistake, this is war. You decide to follow Jesus Christ, you've just gotten into the war of all wars. There are victories and there are failures. Right when you feel like you've been good and you deserve a three-day pass from the war, it flares up. Now many people think that you can negotiate a truce with their sinful desires by just giving them a little attention. You can't. It's a weed. It just needs to be pulled out. So I'll just tell you, over time, this gets exhausting. And it gets discouraging. And some people decide, you know, I'm tired of fighting the war against this, my, my sinful desires. And they pull out the bowl and they cover it over the light. The last one here is the desire to coast. We just get tired over time of making hard, unpopular choices. We get tired of the fight against our desire to sin. Now, we usually don't want to just punt on Jesus, make a big deal and say, we're not going to follow him anymore. We, we just want to take a little break for a while. This is why it says, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. This describes someone who has rejected Jesus and they accuse you of doing something wrong when you obey him. But by the time Jesus shows up and they see him face to face, they are giving him glory because they have seen the value of what you do. How did that change happen? They've seen your good deeds. Not just one of them. Not just 20 of them but a long period of time. They have seen you live good lives. That's different than a good deed. They've seen the path of your life over time. And in the end, they will have to admit that you were right to follow Jesus, even though they accused you of doing wrong. The desire to be popular and the desire to sin isn't just a phase we go through. It's something we struggle with throughout our whole life. There's, there's an intense season of it, and then it lets up, and then it comes back again. I want to wrap up by, well, almost wrap up, by reading a quote from Screwtape Letters with C.S. Lewis. If you've not read this book, it's a great read. C.S. Lewis um, is writing imaginary letters of instruction from a demon a senior demon to a junior demon in the art of temptation. He's basically giving coaching instructions on how to mess us Christians up. And here's what he says. I think this is chapter 28. This is talking about the desire to coast. And I say this because I have been tempted by this one more later in life. I knew it early, but this has been a bigger struggle later in life. Here's what he says the long dull monotonous years of middle-aged prosperity or middle-aged adversity are excellent campaigning weather. You see it's so hard for these creatures speaking of us Christians to persevere. The routine of adversity, the gradual decay of youthful loves and youthful hopes, the quiet of this, the uh, this is so accurate. I don't love it. This is accurate. <laughs> the quiet despair Hardly felt as pain, of ever overcoming the chronic temptations with which we have again and again defeated them, the drabness we create in their lives, and the inarticulate resentment with which we teach them to respond to it, all this provides admirable opportunities of wearing out a soul by attrition. We have to persevere. One of the things he goes on to say is these creatures can't persevere. They struggle with it, and it's true. So there are four types of Christians presented in these nine verses from 1 Peter. They are the isolated Christians. They don't want to become a part of the spiritual house. They usually say very little about Christ as they are lights. they, they They put the bowl of isolation. They don't say very much about Christ, and therefore they make very little impact for him. Then there's the irritated Christians. In my experience, they say too much because they're irritated. They're the ones that cause problems. The impact they make is not a good one. Then there's the immature Christians. What they do say about Jesus doesn't match what they do. And so that's like a bowl that covers up the light. And then there are the impact Christians. They're far from perfect, but they keep growing and keep loving the people God puts in their path, and they keep teeming with the spiritual house. They become a part. And over time, they're a part of changing this world. So I encourage you, don't be isolated. Don't allow yourself to get irritated at people who are not following Jesus. Don't coast. Or allow sin to take over so that you can be light that doesn't have the bowl covered over it, but shines in this ever darkening world. So let's pray together. Father, I pray that you'd give each of us in this room um, right now, kind of like a, um, a finger from you, Holy Spirit, in our hearts that will say, This is the one that you really need to focus on right now. This is the one that you're drifting into or this is the one that you need to shore up. There's a lot of information, but Holy Spirit, we just need to do the next right thing. So show us, everyone in this room, what it is you want us to begin to work on out of what we heard from your word. And then help us to do that by your grace and by your power. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ our Savior. Amen.